to episode three of the podcast. And uh, I have Mick Veach uh, with me from Michigan. He's a pastor at Kentwood Community Church. And uh, I like to interview people that I've met along the way uh, in, my, in my travels who, who live compelling Christian lives. And Mick, you definitely fall into that category. So thanks for taking the time to, to uh, come on the podcast today. It's good to be here, Mike. Uh, I'm excited to. Uh, I have no idea what you're going to ask me, so I'll be. <laughs> well, I, I'm, you know, I'm basically basically talking about life and ministry and and uh, and and pretty uh, pretty gen- like uh, you know how how are we what, what does the future look like and how are we how are we uh, handling COVID as a church and, and all of those kinds of things, but. Uh, Sure. So I, I first remember meeting you, Mick, probably back in the '90s, probably back at a at a Kingdom Building Ministries, which is now Forge, right? Yeah, yeah, that would. Have and you're you're awesome. still speaking for them. You're still traveling. I, yeah, I'm an associate, kind of like you were. Right. Uh, but um, yeah, so that would have been about like 1992 or three. Right. Few- yeah. Yeah. So I just remember. I just remember. Uh, you know this this guy that looked like a California surfer, and I was like, "Who, who is that guy?" Like, and so you were doing a lot of uh, a lot of youth speaking and speaking to college students and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then, we don't get I don't get asked for uh, students much these days. Uh, <laughs> well, it's been about it's. I I think mine stopped last year. I actually did a youth rally last year, which I was okay. I was like. I am stretching the outside edges of this thing. You know, like, <laughs> You're like, if they're asking you and I, then we got a problem with. Uh, we, uh, with we got a we got a problem, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I do, uh, I do remember. I, I guess when I when I think of you, I think of a couple of different wild rides that we took, Nick. One was, uh, yeah. one was, I remember riding with you through Maine in the middle of an ice storm. Is a bl- I would call it a blizzard. It was yeah, and uh, it was yeah. I, I think it increased our prayer life for sure. <laughs> and, you're, definitely, uh, you're definitely a man without fear. You're like we're going. <laughs> well, I like to get to the destination, you know. So, uh, and then uh, a couple of years ago, we we had an interesting ride uh, through a flash flood in Haiti, which was <laughs> kind of the other end of the spectrum. It was really really hot and really wet and uh and yeah that was uh, so when, when i think of you my mind flashes to to van rides for some reason but <laughs> that was that was quite the uh last flood you guys are in the van in front of us and your all your luggage got soaked because it was on top when that hit yeah i literally had to take everything out of every single piece of clothing out of my luggage and <laughs> and dry it and dry it all over the room that i was i was staying in so you know, days. F- fun times in ministry. <laughs> so Mick, why don't you, uh, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where you're at now and what, what ministry looks like for you now, and then we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Sure. Yeah, I'm in Grand Rapids, or actually Kentwood, um, just uh, southeast of Grand Rapids. We actually border it. And as you said, at Kentwood Community Church, I'm the lead pastor at a church that's uh, 41 years old. So I come into a church that basically um, has an incredible heritage, and there's probably nothing as I came here that they haven't tried or done after 41 years. I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think that uh, they probably have tried everything, and then COVID hit, and then we had. I was like, oh, so maybe we'll we will be doing things that they've never done before because right. we're in the world. So God, God, uh, God had prepared you for that moment, right? Exactly. I my executive pastor actually said to me last week you've actually been leading us through uh she said these words through a short-term mission trip to navigate us through to get through until we get to the other side wow so you do have some training in that for sure just a little bit (laughs) not as much as you you've traveled on short-term trips way more than me i decided to live overseas for 10 years and give up the short-term trip experience that's right which is uh yeah those are the real heroes of the mission world right that's uh, that's when the where the rubber meets the road so why don't we back up a little bit and just uh give us a little spiritual uh biography mick and uh because i i know you didn't necessarily grow up uh in a 
in a pastor's home or any of those, any of that kind of thing. So uh, how did you, how did you come to Christ? As believe it or not, as a teenager and uh, went to a camp of all places and went there for the wrong reasons. Didn't even know they were going to preach the scriptures. It was 1982. I was 16. And uh, uh, Dwight Robertson was the guest speaker. And I grew up in Marion, Indiana, um, small town where the uh, denomination I'm in, Wesleyan Church, is used to have their headquarters. And people used to joke with me, how did you become a part of the Wesleyan Church? I said, well, when I grew up in Marion, every street corner had a Wesleyan Church. So if you get saved, that's where you end up. Right. I ended up. So I ended up at this camp in Michigan, West Michigan, of all places. And the first time I actually heard a clear message about Jesus Christ from a divorce background, no, no church experience. I was so drunk the weekend prior to youth camp, I couldn't have told you what I did. I was a, I'm a type of personality. When I do something, I'm all in. I would have probably be dead now um, from whatever it is I would have been involved with. But I got saved at such a young age, actually, of God's grace and mercy upon me. But when he, when it was a supernatural thing, Mike, in such a way, it is really critical. If you heard my preaching over the last, I don't know, years and years and years, I always come back to that. I always say July 28th, 1982, July 28th, 1982. And it so changed me. It was the, a supernatural, mystical experience that God so everything connected, everything made sense. I didn't know the Bible, but I knew something had happened in my life that the rest of my life I knew I had to share with people what he's done for me, um, he could do for them. And I didn't even know that meant ministry at the time. But by the way, a little neat caveat of that was um, you you are old enough to know uh, of Keith Green. And yeah. Keith Green actually was killed the same day I was saved. Really? That was, wow. That was, my, that was my introduction to Keith Green was everybody talking at the camp that his plane had just gone down. Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah so uh, I think one of the reasons I resonate with it, I, I, I became a Christian in, nine, in August of 1982. Oh, wow. So there was something going on there. And, I, and it was a very, <laughs> I, uh, from a totally non-church background yeah. and, uh, and, and a very, very um, kind of supernatural, you know, what, what some people might call a power encounter. It was very, very tangible experience. And like you said, it's, it's been a uh, like a benchmark in my. Uh, it's the foundation of my my Christian life. Uh, when I, when things get tough, I I know that I had a real experience with God. And, yeah, and uh, you probably can still remember it as I do. I mean, I still remember it. I mean, it's not. It's it seems like a lifetime ago, but yet I still know that moment what happened to me. Um, and that, I don't even know how many years that was, but that's a lot of. It's almost forty years. Um, ago so for me so yeah and you so it'd be about 40 years and 2022 39 years right now so that's a long time ago and I started reading scripture and then I had something that I didn't realize was abnormal because I didn't have any church experience and that was um, my still my best friend to this day and who was my mentor Dwight who ended up being my youth pastor took me underneath his wing and started reading scripture with me and spending two to three nights, uh, days and nights a week with me, like a Paul Timothy thing. I didn't know what Paul Timothy thing was. I didn't know. He just started pouring into this kid from a divorce background, stuttered, had nobody believed in and just started, we memorized scripture together. And I just started taking scripture for, for face value. Next thing I know, a year later, I'm in Tegucigalpa for the entire summer. Um, and there began my journey of God opening my eyes to the world as a 17-year-old before my senior year. And, and then from there, it just started steamrolling where I started to experience the world um, for the next years in different roles, but still continue to go as you have through your uh, ministry career. And uh, I found that to be so critically important in my foundation because growing up in a small town, I don't know if you grew up in a small town or not, but growing up in a small town, there's a very narrow view of life, of culture, of what's expected. And it was me getting beyond that mentality that enabled me to realize there were possibilities because nobody in my family had even gone to college. That's not, college doesn't make you great wow, or anything right. else. But it was the paradigm. You work the farm or you work a factory and nothing wrong with that. It's just all of a sudden I realized, oh, that's not my thing. 
And in, in order for me to do what I really believe I should do, which happened in Honduras is I wanted to share the gospel, Dwight gently said, you might want to get some education. And I was like, well, you told me about this guy named D.L. Moody who had bad grammar and et cetera, et cetera, and God used him. Couldn't he do that for me? You know, I didn't really want to go to school. Right. And he gently took me down that road and, um, and I started my education from there. Yeah, so did you, um, I never actually had like a official call to ministry. I, uh, I just kind of assumed that all Christians did ministry. And then by the time I realized that that might not be true, uh, it, was, it was too late. I was already, I was already involved in, in uh, doing things. So did you, was there a specific time where you felt like, this is it, like I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to be a pastor, I'm going into ministry? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a pastor, but it was while I was in Honduras. That's a, it was a, so it was a year after, and I never aspired to be a pastor, or a missionary, or a speaker, or any of that. It's just those things served me doing what I wanted to do was share Jesus. And so I knew in Honduras that I was going to give my life to sharing the gospel, whatever that meant and wherever that took me. I did not know, but I knew that that was the key. key. But at 17 or 18, I knew that God would eventually start to show that to me. And then as I went to school, um, to college, I went to Taylor University and started traveling, et cetera. Things started to unfold for me about opportunities, et cetera. Yeah, so um, so you ended up uh, being, were you primarily like a itinerant youth speaker for a while? Um, is that how well, it went? No, actually what well, went is I went to Taylor and then after that, I went and got my master's at Columbia International University in South Carolina. And I chose it right afterwards because they were one of the premier mission schools in the, in the, in the Western hemisphere. And uh, I was going to get my degree and then I was gonna go overseas and serve as a missionary. So between from starting college till I finished my grad school, I thought I was gonna be a missionary immediately out of uh, my education. And while I was finishing my master's, I get a call from a youth, uh, a church in Port Huron, Michigan. I'd never really, other than getting saved in Michigan, I'd never really been to Michigan. I grew up in Indiana, as I said, and I'm in South Carolina currently. And they asked me to come up and interview to be a youth pastor in Port Huron, Michigan, which is a border town to Canada. And I was so upset. And I said, well, I'll go pray about it. And I went out in the woods and God and I had it out. And I knew he wanted me to go up there, but I, I, I went to the interview out of obedience. And I was like, I'm not a youth pastor. I, I'm not funny. I don't swallow fish. I, I'm not, I don't, I'm just, I'm too serious and intense. I don't fit whatever that is, whatever youth pastor is. I didn't think I was, but long story short, God said, I want you to go there. And I did, and was there for two and a half years. And I met my wife there. And the beautiful thing about that was I knew that I was still called to be a missionary and I knew I was called to the Islamic world. So it's not just to be in a missionary, but it's also the Islamic world. So, and you want to be married. So you, you want a Christian woman, but you want a woman's called to missions and willing to go to the Islamic world. That just takes the- That's a the, tall it, order, yeah. Yeah, it takes that right way down. But then here she is, when I arrived there, she's in Indonesia living in a tent all summer. And uh, the next summer she's in Tanzania all summer living in a tent. And I first met her, she was in combat boots um at church and i was like that's my kind of woman rest is <laughs> <laughs> so you you uh i one of the things i've noticed about your life mick is that you uh you've you've made some uh kind of risky moves like you've you've done some uh at least you know kind of what most people will consider lateral moves in uh in your ministry and and one of them was one of them was uh going to the Muslim world. And so how long did you, did you spend there? Well, I, I went and you asked me about the itinerant ministry, youth itinerant. I went from being a youth pastor to Forge Ministries, which you would, used to be kingdom building ministry. And I was there for four or five years. Um, and that's where my wife and I moved. So we lived in Denver for four or five years, um, directed the, at the, if you remember back in the day, it was called the Laborers Institute. Right. And I was Steve Moore and I was a part of that team. And then um, in 1996, God, clearly I was reading a magazine. And it was a picture of an Asian in Cambodia and God said, now's the time to go. And so I began that journey um, from there. And my wife and I, we had a one-year-old and a two-year-old. 
And we wanted to go to a place where there were no missionaries. Rarely, there was uh, 18 missionaries for 8 million people and it was illegal. So that was how we narrowed the field down in the country. I don't wanna, there's still for um, your pod- podcast reasons, I probably won't say where. Yeah, but... I, I purposely didn't say the name of the country. So. <laughs> Which you and I, you know, so yeah. we, we believed God wanted us to go there and I had no idea what I was getting into. There's something beautiful and naivety in youth. I was 30 <laughs> years old when we left, spent my twenties being the youth pastor, the speaker and all that um, with Forge and youth pastor. And now we jumped in for the next 10. So it was 10 years, nine and a half. The project was 10 years. We were actually in field for nine. So I was there until I was 40 and we, um, we were there, as you know, during 9-11, which was a unique curve being in the Islamic world. I don't know what it was like in the States. All my family and all my friends, I have no, I, have, I don't have the experience of what it was like to be here during that whole time. And uh, so that was another curve in the whole process why we lived there, where it was so, it was where Americans were being targeted simply because we were American. You know, you and I read right. biographies where where missionaries were martyred because they wanted to align with the locals and uh, affili- affiliate with them and be supportive and die with them. Well, this was a little different. This was simply on a geopolitical thing, being an American where they state department folks were being killed, um, uh, reporters, et cetera. And so the United States ambassador was a friend of mine. He would have me rotate routes every day after 9-11 because I was a public figure in that small country. And my wife didn't tell me till afterwards, but for six months, she thought for sure I would never return, that I was going to be kidnapped during that season. So it was a, it's one thing to say, you'll die for Jesus. It's another thing when you say it with your wife, it's quite another thing by when you have two children that are really small. And yeah, yeah. so that was a whole nother um, uh, pick up your cross moment for me that truly uh, helped me figure out what it meant to truly understand uh, I didn't obviously die or was not uh, kidnapped but it was more am I going to back out am I going to come back to the states and we didn't and obviously God gave us a harvest and I'm here to talk about it as a result yeah was your uh was your transition back to this to the U.S. difficult like did you go through some of the reverse culture shock things that People, uh, people talk about, about. yeah um our we we melanie and i um went to counseling um i would say more for grief it was loss see mike what people don't understand is that saying yes to jesus isn't always the easiest they would have assumed that we came back because we were like oh we're so ready to be back in the states we're so ready to be a pastor no it was god said it's time i want you to mobilize now i had opened up four fields and recruited a um, three teams, um, four teams, but one of them had, um, didn't work out. And it was time for, I had mentored them. It was time for them to take off. I wanted to go back and recruit more um, laborers for the Great Commission. And I knew the best way to do that was at a local church. So we came back and my wife would say to me, your message is too hard for the North American church. You can't grow the church. You're, you're, you're like, a, like more prophetic in your preaching, and right. calling. it's great to be an evangelist. It's another thing to be a pastor and do that week in and week you out. You can be a prophetic if you're leaving at the end of the week. It's a little so, harder if you're there you, all the time. Yep, when you're doing relationships. So yeah, we struggled. Um, when we came back, when we left, we had a one-year-old and a two-year-old. When we came back, we had 11, 10, and we had adopted a child who was eight at the time. So it was quite the adjustment. Um, and we, we, we were up just north of Detroit at a church called Stony Creek and um, started another nine-year um, tenure of pastoring there. And uh, for the purpose of being a changing, for a church to change the world, we, we sent out, um, we focused on another Islamic country and sent out five, four or five families to that country from that church and watched about 56 people call into ministry and sent out and we planted wow. a church there. So we were- That's really unusual for a local church too. Yeah, yeah. And so- but we were so missional, like I, we didn't build a sanctuary. We kept the gym. All the money went for missions and for uh, church planning and being very missional. I'm not saying that's everybody's call, but that was what we did specifically there, which then led me 
after a decade to um, take a sabbatical and those are dangerous things to do right where <laughs> god starts speaking to us you can slow down enough to listen right exactly listening has been a achilles heel for me but i think in my 50s i'm much better at listening than i was and i think that's hopefully with life and maturity we're, in, we're a little bit better and wiser than we were. Yeah, I've, we were. I've never been accused of being a great listener. I, you know, I work at it, but uh, <laughs> exactly. it's not my forte necessarily. Exactly. So, yeah, um, yeah in your in in your fifties, you kind of pivoted again to uh, you know, a couple a few a few summers ago. Now, uh, you you gave me a little tour of Detroit, and you had you were planning a church there, and uh, which is to to head into to head into like an urban environment and uh to, totally. to plant a church uh you know in your 50s is that's actually, not something everybody does like so that was that was, actually, a, that was a that was a gutsy move it was actually i was 49 and uh everybody like you said they were like wait a minute that's for the young bucks you're supposed to go up the ladder not give up all the nice security of your employment. Cause I had, a, I had a great situation where I was and I was like, I don't get to choose. I don't get to choose. And, um, and it was all, Mike, it was all yet again, it was an incredible learning experience. I, it's one thing to do a short-term experience in urban, which I'd done off and on in my life. It's another thing to live in the urban culture. And so I was on a huge, massive learning curve again, just like we were when we were in the Middle East and found myself, you know, going coming from the Middle East and learning all of that to a suburban uh, mid-sized to a large church, that to the urban core uh, of Detroit and uh, started that church and miracle upon miracle where we were able to really see God do some incredible things and get an old, I think I showed you the building. Maybe I showed you the, were you, when we met? Yeah, this, yeah. Building. Yeah, we did a little walkthrough, and it was it was it was still in pretty rough shape at that point. I think. Yeah, now it's amazing. It's a yeah. beautiful, well done. Everybody said I should have tore the building down, but I was being missional because I understood the folks in Detroit and the way you plan in the suburbs, not the way you plan in the urban. And a building matters in that context. So you have to figure out how you do mission depending on who you're doing mission with or to. And so for them, a building mattered suburbs you can rent a you know storefront be there right. a few hours but it doesn't work in, in the city that well i had to be amongst the people living with the people just like it did in the middle east same principle go through the same stuff when somebody gets shot and kayla and my wife dunk for a couple hours outside and they they crash we feel it with everybody in our neighborhood we don't go into the gated area and say we're going to drive in because jesus didn't do that jesus was always with the people. And, um, but I gotta say something to you is that I gotta confess that we were tempted. We were this close, Mike, um, to purchasing inside of Detroit where there was a gated community. I didn't even know they existed in Detroit. A gated community, a nice, you wouldn't have known it any different than a suburb. And God just so convicted me. He said, that's not the way you lived in the Middle East. Are you getting soft in your old days? Do you? You are you getting what? What you feel like you've earned it? You have an entitlement going on with you. So do you? Did you? Uh, like one of the things that I've noticed is, as I'm, I am actually in my 60s, so I'm kind of a little ahead of you. Sure. And I have no like the temptations change as you get older, and the temptation is towards softness and taking the easy route. Is that? Okay. Have you have you experienced that yet? I haven't personally experienced, but yeah. I see it. I, I shouldn't, how should I say that? It's there because I think that's the norm. I'm 54 years old. So uh, most of the folks that I'm, I've been around, they are very, it's like they're trying to, to, to land the plane and figure out how to land a plane. And I'm just right. like, I'm getting ready to take off. So it's been really hard to, um, there's a new book, uh, not a new book, but a book that I've been reading called Glorious Finish. And I really recommend it because um, statistically speaking, Mike, guys that do what we do, um, most of them either just, uh, uh, they coast to the finish line or they screw up big time, but a very few finish strong, like full sprint out to the finish line. And I'm determined I'm going to do that. 
um, but it's who I surround myself with. Right. I have to be around, I have to, who I'm around is going to keep me on the cutting edge and saying yes, because the Holy Spirit keeps pushing me to not be comfortable. My, all of our journeys are different. Mine seemed like they have been in a 10-year segments. I told the Lord, I don't, I don't have too many 10-year segments left. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, 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 and Detroit was incredible. And I didn't want to leave Detroit, by the way. Didn't want to leave Detroit. It was incredible. We were four and a half years in and man, it was, it was, it was killing, man. We were, we were, we were multi-ethnic and we had all diversity that I had dreamt and reaching in every capacity and all the adventure and everything else. Even had a Satanist group attack me and threatened to take me out. And yeah, because there's, there's quite a big, uh, is there a Satanist church? In Detroit, yes. that I do, if yeah. I remember it's, right, yeah, yeah, good, yeah. So, like a re, very open one. That's you know, it's not very a open. thing, yeah. And they they openly communicated to me on social media that they are tired of what was happening in the spiritual realm, and they were going to take me out. Okay. <laughs> quote. That's a quote. They right. Did. And next thing I know, and then they, but then they also said they were going to take mosaic out brick by brick. So then I knew I probably had to call the Detroit police because of people attending, and then they connected me to the FBI because I guess that's not, that's a no-no. You don't threaten right. uh, this church. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so your, uh, your time in Detroit when you, what, what was the, the kind of the impetus to, to leave there and to, to be where you're at now? Like it's, what it's, was it's the so scenario? Funny. It's the same with all of them. They were just even like in my own, there's a theme and I'm, I'm getting an aha moment here it's still a very a mystical supernatural thing. I never was like, oh, now I want to need to leave. When I, when I left each um, transition, it was like the Holy Spirit came on me and said, it's time to leave. As a matter of fact, um, I was approached uh, we were about the KCC, Kentwood, um, when the pastor was resi uh, resigning and I said, no. And six months later, I'm asleep in Detroit, not even paying any attention to Kentwood just doing my thing. And I'm awoken, I'm awakened in the middle of the night, Kentwood. I woke up, looked at my wife, went back to sleep, woke up again, Kentwood, <laughs> looked up at my wife, still asleep, woke up in the morning. We talked about it. And I was like, what, what, how help me process this? He said, well, just let's connect with the superintendent and throw a fleece out there and ask him. And he said, we've been looking for six months nationwide, over 110, 150 applicants. And God has said no to all of them. Um, and uh, would you engage them? And not knowing what, how God was going to do that, because I, so Mosaic, I said, the church I planted in Detroit, his name was Mosaic. I was like, well, I can't just leave them. So we created this, long story short, they, it was clear that I should come here because they're a multi-ethnic church also, but it's a large multi-ethnic church. But we were going to connect Mosaic somehow so that I wouldn't just leave it high and dry in its fifth year of being planted, as you know, right. that's not Anything that I probably done at Mosaic would be everything that you could teach in your class, Mike, as to know what you should not do. Right. <laughs> and yeah, which says sometimes God doesn't fit all of our perfect. Not that we shouldn't have guidelines and lessons, but that's that was well, that was the experience of Mosaic. And now I don't know if you know Pastor Santis Beatty, but he is yes, yeah, he's the pastor there and is just killing it. And we are now a network of churches. We are network churches. And what I've done is, even when I got to Kentwood, is we are, we're decampusing. I'm all okay. about decampusing. I'm about, I'm like, let's, let's release them, have their own name, and just keep moving forward because it sound, seemed too difficult to create this huge piece where everybody's got to come to the mama ship, get all their answers, build this huge thing. And we needed to be mobile and flexible and keep birthing and keep planting. And so, I've been in the middle of that while I was here because I inherited some what the campusing and I knew campusing is good, but I also believe that God uh, has more than one way to do it. Right. One more than one way that, that, but it seemed to me that was the only way either you plan a church or you do a campusing and everybody was that had the ability was campusing because it was the thing you did. And uh, I, I kind of combined the two of church planning and campusing and said, we will be independent and autonomous but we will be such a network of close knit. We will be um, tied together by mission that we will see other multi-ethnic churches. And that's a, 
I don't know about Canada, but you know, in the States, that's now a, a real tension, the whole multi-ethnic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So KCC thought 2016 of U.S. elections was really bad, and they, they suffered immensely as a multi-ethnic church. That was only a precursor to 2020, and now I'm, now I'm in the seat, what we went through from COVID to uh, George Floyd and the racial, recon- uh, racial tensions to um, the uh, politics of the, of the uh, and then all the things in, um, that occurred there. I, I was in a hot seat, uh, like I'd never been prior to my experience of what in the world am I going to do with, with this? I could blow the whole thing up. Right, and so uh, how, how have you managed to navigate that? I think the, the crux, the critical point was we were doing really good, um, COVID hit, and I said immediately the church is gonna change. And I, I said that from day one. First thing I said to our team was, we're gonna be, we're gonna create an online church, not a Sunday morning experience, which we already had, but an online church. And I said, I want the Cadillac. That's the first thing. I want a Cadillac version. I don't want a little sedan because this is the new reality of a church, whether they like it or not. So go learn, figure it out and give me a model. And we began doing that, hiring an online. I hired four, three or four people during COVID because I said, we're going to have to be more aggressive now than we will ever be because of our situation. So we started this whole online church thing. And secondly, we uh, um, then had the issue of the, I don't know if you saw this, but Grand Rapids, you know Grand Rapids, and I know your listeners may not, but it's a very, uh, West Michigan's, what should I say, a reformed Dutch out here, but Grand Rapids has got is 30% minority, which most people don't know. But during, after George Floyd, Grand Rapids was devastated. It was a national news. It shocked America. Grand Rapids was completely trashed, tore down that downtown the next morning. And we started meeting. Then we had Corona going on on top of that, right? Everybody shut down. Well, uh, we only shut down for a few weeks. And so I, the thing that I immediately did is we went on the rooftop. So we started services outside on the rooftop. And I said, like, oh, I found something. that Kind, kind of doing like that. the Beatles thing, right? They're, yeah, yeah. We're off on the I'm roof. Pretty- I'm preaching from the roof. It's the craziest thing. And so we met Mike for six months outside. Food trucks, people coming with their dogs and their lawn chairs and sitting out. They adapted immediately. It's crazy. And so we 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 have the setting and the finances to be able to still do live stream and begin having that. So I say all that to say we're outside and the George Floyd thing happens and Grand Rapids happens, and it was the point in which people were like, "Wait a minute, I knew the elephant." was as it relates to multi-ethnicity is they can't would go back on their desire to be multi. I think they hired a white dude. See, the guy before me was African-American, right? Right, right. So are they going back and giving up on this? Um, he gives all the right answers, but what's he gonna do? And so George Floyd happens and the white people are looking at me. What's he gonna say? The black people are looking at me. What's he gonna say? I feel like Solomon with the two moms and the child, right. what are you going to do? And I got down on my knees and I knew in a moment, that was the moment we drew a line in the sand and I stood up and made a declaration. We did an incredible presentation to honor our African-American brothers and sisters. And I said, I'm so tired of the politics and I'm so tired that you want to you justify everything. And I was talking to white folks and I said, I don't care where you fall politically. I'm going to just tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says when our arm hurts, we all hurt. And your African-American brothers and sisters this very moment are deeply hurting. And we are going to hurt with them. We're not gonna qualify it. We're not gonna justify it. We're not gonna tell them how long they can grieve. We're not gonna tell them that all lives matter. Well, my word, we all know We all know that all lives matter. That, that's a biblical concept. They don't believe their lives matter. So would you just sit with them and listen to them instead of getting all political on me? and we did a presentation after, and I got on my knees and I wept and I lamented on behalf of the church that we have failed a part of the body of Christ. And then we did a song called Rose Petals, a guy from Brazil sang. And we had over 56 people come out with um, their a photo of African-Americans that have been shot and killed um, in the US um, that they shouldn't have. And we wept and bled. And Mike, in that moment, the line in the sand was drawn and African-Americans would got out of their cars in that big parking lot with their hands raised weeping. I had two African-Americans on the live stream and the big cameras and the cameras started shaking as they were weeping. And in that moment, they realized that 
we weren't backing away. We weren't trying to be political. We were all in and the what I call the glorious mess of saying it's e it's hard enough to get along with people that in your sameness cluster, nonetheless, as somebody that totally thinks about life differently. But God has honored that and we have navigated through and uh, are seeing some really cool things happen as a result of that. And drawing a line in the sand helped us truly not um, waffle. And then the second thing I would say to you is that we, we, I would not allow us to become political. I said, it's about the mission. So we hired it. Uh, I hired yet another minority from Asia to be our outreach director. And we started doing the things that you've done for years with students right around us. Kent Wood, um, Mike is, uh, has 90 languages in our small community, 90 languages. Wow, that's amazing. Kentwood High School, Kentwood High School is the um, seventh most diverse high school in the United States of America. This is where I landed. So we are creatively going after people's groups from all over the world, right here in our little 75,000 um, population of Kentwood, connected to a larger Grand Rapids, obviously. So um, staying on mission and saying that we're going to adapt, but the mission is going to stay the same. And I kept saying the road behind us is not the road in front of us. The road behind us is not the road in front of us. We've got to adapt now. And if you're just trying to tread water and waiting for it to go back to normal, you're, you've already lost because that's not gonna happen. And getting our people to convince to that has enabled us to truly navigate in a way that we're, we're still on a learning curve like everybody, um, but we're, we're getting, we're, we're getting a sense that God is directing us in a way that's helping us to meet our unique situation here, which is uh, unique to us because it's, it is our area, it's called Kentwood. Yeah, and I, I'm more convinced than ever that, that the gospel is the answer to everything <laughs> to 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 you know all the problems that we that we face and 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 when we try to when we try to solve those problems without the presence of god in the center i mean it just falls apart it just it just doesn't work so i think it's really really important for the world to hear biblical voices like yours uh mick and and uh you know to, to step into the middle of the fray not to not to run away from it and and also not to just uh you know pick a side which is really easy to do but the, the, I, I think i think the cross is planted right in the middle of the mess you know it is i think the i think for the typical pastor mike you probably would agree this this has been really hard because a typical pastor has a gift of mercy and shepherding which is really critical for long-term uh, caring for the sheep right well everybody's so angry everybody has an opinion and it's devastated a local pastor because people are coming after them this way or that way no matter what decision they make and it's been really daunting the way i've explained it to my staff is i think we got two sides happening and they're both demonic in my opinion we've got the at least in the states and i'm assuming in canada we got the extreme left that is very very uh blatant out to destroy the church very anti-jesus anti-gospel and it's obvious what their agenda is and they don't care that you know it, right? And that's, that's always been there, but that's like pressing in on us. And, it's, and they're steal, they steal things. Like for me, I have nothing, I have no, for example, I have no problem with saying Black Lives Matter, but Black Lives Matter, the movement stole it. And as a result, that organization in the US has stolen it and has very other tenants that are very dangerous and, and, and anti What's the word I'm trying to say? Antithetical, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to the gospel, to the gospel, right? They stole it. And I can give you four more examples of that, 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 that the left has done. But then we've got the right that's even more dangerous in the U.S. in the name of Jesus, religious Christian nationalism and idolatry that's coming in. And they're saying this, it's this way, thus the storming of the Capitol. And you've got these two groups crushing in on the church right now. And the if you don't have the core center of the gospel as to what you're about, you will give in. Because I preached this last week and said, we are seeing Jesus' words and the New Testament words happening in the U.S. You guys are probably a little ahead of us as it relates to the, the 
the pushback on the church in Canada? Yeah, we are. Uh, we don't have uh, the right wing extreme extremist problem as as much as we have the left wing. So it's it's a little different. Yeah, and we have we have this where there. I preached on Sunday where the. I know that I know that we will be considered hate speech and the book that you and I love and we'll give our life for, the Bible will be a hate book. It's coming. And what I'm concerned about is that just like those left groups that have stolen good things and hijacked them, what's happening is that because we don't have a, the gospel-centered and biblical worldview, churches in the U.S. can't speak for Canada, are compromising now at levels I've never seen. And trying to yeah, be really that's soft. big time in Canada as well. I don't want to be considered hate speech. I don't want to, and, and I'm 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 not about this idolatry right wing thing here. But I have to stand on truth wherever the chips may fall. And we the draw the, the line is being drawn. And what I said is that what you may not understand to our church is that persecution has been around a long time. I've seen it up close. And I'm talking about persecution for being a follower of Jesus. I'm not talking about struggles and all of the results of the fall that we all experience, you know, you know, earthquakes and famines and all the things that happen, murder, accidents, all those things that happen because of the fall. But we're seeing at epic proportions the persecution of Christians which has been around since Jesus, right? But in the United States, that we've not known that. But those tendencies are the pressure that I told you about, they're they're coming in. Uh, they're coming, they've re they're reaching our shores. I can see them. And what God has said to me is prepare the bride. There's an urgency. We've created a consumer church in the U.S. I've, I said Sunday, I said, Mike, we've left the Holy Spirit out because I can go to Seattle, Washington, to Miami, Florida, to Portland, Maine, to San Diego, California, and I can go to an evangelical church and they're all a dime a dozen. Is that not trouble you? That, we, that we're that diverse as a big nation and there's no, I'm okay with templates and whatever, but we have so left out the power of God in this whole demonstration of being church that these persecutions that are coming, we won't be able to survive. We, it's been easy. We won't be able to survive. Now the church will win. The remnant will stand. We know You and I know that from looking at other the brothers and sisters around the world. We will win, but it's not going to look the same. And it's time that we wake up, in my opinion, to prepare the church, prepare the church now, because it's better to make the decision now rather than in the middle of the heat of the moment, for sure. Yeah, God, God spoke to me probably about the middle of the summer. Uh, I was kind of getting a message ready, speaking at a church, and, and uh, he said, you know, everybody's, you're, you're all praying for things to go back to normal and everything to get better. We're like, will you will you still serve me if it doesn't get better? If things never go back that way again, like, will you be faithful in serving me? And I had to wrestle with that and, and say, and say, yes, but I, um, and I do get accused sometimes of being, you know, a little overdramatic or intense, but I, I really do resonate with what you said, Nick, about, uh, you know, get, I feel like I'm getting students ready for, for uh, ministry in a, in an arena that that I didn't necessarily have to do ministry in, you know, and it and it's coming and and just uh, you well, know, kind I, of toughen up, get close to God, and get ready. Well, what you just said, my uh, middle child, Michaela, is a pastor in the Wesleyan Church, and she's a mission mobilizer now for Global Partners. And Mike, on her social platforms, the 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 hate and the attack is what you and I did not face being called a neo-colonist, a bigot, uh, the, uh, the arrogance of calling, calling people out to destroy cultures, to go out in the name of Jesus in this militant form. And I said, I've been coaching her. And I was like, I said, her name is Michaela. I said, Michaela, I have not, I've, I did not experience what you, so what you're training your students. I have not experienced that. I didn't experience that in my twenties. We had right. radicals out there, but now, the new tolerance is you have to agree with me. That there's no such thing as tolerance anymore. You have to line up with me. And if you're not, you're phobic, you're a bigot, you're a hate monger, you're a hate speech person. You have to completely line up with me. Um, and that's the generation that our students are 
um, facing. And the second thing that I would say to you, I'll be personal with you. You can decide whether you want to edit this or not. Okay. Uh, we've gone through the toughest two weeks of our lives. I'll, I'll pause to get my emotions. Um, that our youngest just denounced Christ that we adopted from Azerbaijan. She's a senior at Indiana Wesleyan. And I can't even remark to the pain. It's worse than death for me because I can win thousands to Christ, but it's always been the number one has been my kiddos. Right. Now she's yeah. the youngest. And so we're walking through a new journey, which for so many of my friends and yours, this is not new. Um, but for me, it's raw. I said, I know you may have been five years, 10 years. This is, this is several weeks old and I, it's killing me in every form and fashion. Um, and what concerns me and what I appreciate about what you're doing in it, and, and I'm, I'll give a plug for Kingswood, is our, our conservative, what you and I would consider Christian liberal arts universities, what they're teaching, I won't blame the university for where she says she's at, but I will say that the environment sure wasn't what it needed to be to help her with right. the, the subtle liberalism, Mike, that's uh, in that university now is shocking to me. From a, 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 but you're probably familiar with, which I just have gotten familiar with, trajectory hermeneutics, which is being promote, being um, thrown out there, which basically says we now have to look at the Bible because as a culture, how we've evolved now. And we can't, and as a result, we can't interpret the way we did back in the day. Because look at our mistakes with slavery, and look at our mistakes the way we treated women, look at the crusades. And so with, so then that changes the whole sexuality issue. Mark my word, that's the issue about the exclusivity of Jesus. That's the whole issue that hell no longer is a real place. It's gutting the entire scripture from that. And I am deeply concerned. And I'm not trying to point, of, I'm sorry, I'm not saying the university. I'm not trying to uh, point a finger. Right, yeah, it's, it's the culture we live in, right? Yeah. yeah, you know better than me. You're in the academic world, so you right. you know what I'm not. I'm I'm not. I I wouldn't. I but I appreciate places like Kingswood, which you know, Michaela, because she went to Kingswood, um, which was an incredible experience for. Her. It's not that Kingswood's goal is to make everybody this on fire for Jesus, and they're not the. They got to you know. It's not, we put too much pressure on it. That's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm saying with, with the liberalism that comes out in our conservative liberal arts universities is very concerning to me. And um, I don't, I have more passion now than I've ever had because I feel at deeper levels than I've ever felt. And I see in ways that I've never seen because um, it's now touching me at the core of where I am at. Um, I've felt for my brothers and sisters, my, my peers and wept with them. But it's one thing to, to feel sorry for my friends. It's another thing when it's in your household. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the bottom, I think the bottom line is, you know, in terms of in terms of reading the scripture, like we we either we either let the scripture judge us or we judge the scripture. Like we, and if we go into if if we even as Christians, if we go into the Bible uh, as the judge rather than letting it judge us, uh, that is a slippery slope, and uh, it does not it does not lead to good places. So. I'm, I'm more, uh, I'm more convinced than ever that, uh, that we just, yeah, we need that solid foundation uh, in the gospel for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was at the Billy Graham um, association a couple of weeks ago at the Cove and at this his library. And I learned that he had the same moment when 1949, Mike, where his best friend became liberal and told Billy, he needs to preach, get modern, stop preaching that old time religion. And Billy went out, as you may know, and he wept over yeah, his Yeah, it was Charles Templeton, right? Yeah, Charles Templeton. And they, they were both evangelists together, and they went in two separate directions. Charles Templeton, I was told by the folks, was actually a better preacher than Billy. That's what they say. Natural. Yeah. Natural. Not the anointing. You and I know there's this thing called the anointing. Right. right? <laughs> but what I wanted to say was what you just said about uh, we let the, the scripture judge us, not us judge the scripture. He had his crisis moment, Billy did, didn't he? And he wept over his Bible in 1949, not knowing that two weeks later, the LA Crusades would start and the rest is history. Wow, the decisions we make um, impact in the course of an entire life and generations. And you and I have already had that. 
we've already experienced that in our lives, but we've got a whole generation that now is um, at levels that we've never seen that are, are attacking what we believe to be core at ways. And I said to my daughter, it's easy, honey, to deconstruct. It's a whole nother thing to, to tell me what you actually believe. Yeah. And it's so much easier to take things apart than to build <laughs> way easier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, this is, this has been a great, uh, a great conversation, Nick. And, uh, and, you know, and the good, the good news in, in all of this is that uh, it's nothing we're, nothing that we're facing is, is new to God. It's, it's all, it's all happened before in one way or another. And uh, I, I always take, I would say that, uh, you know, bad times for the world are, are good times for the gospel. And so, so I'm convinced that, uh, that God is, God is still at work. And uh, I believe, I believe it. I believe when I say that our best days are ahead of us, that doesn't mean it's, uh, it's going to be easy days, <laughs> but it will be Mike for the gospel woman. What did Jesus say to us in the middle of all hell in Matthew 24 is breaking loose and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So I'm more motivated than ever to finish the mission and go home. And with all that's going on, I believe that we will see the greatest. And that's why I'm calling on the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe we need a demonstration of the Holy Spirit in ways we have never experienced before. Stop putting them in in a box and domesticating them. Stop being afraid of what he, and I'm talking to the evangelical church that doesn't lean towards Pentecostalism or charismatic. I'm not trying to wave a flag for that brand of Christendom. I'm just saying we need a biblically based outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I know lots of folks are praying for revival, but the one thing I feel like is left out is repentance. Repentance comes with revival, doesn't right. it? But we truly are, are repentant of where we're at and then watching God's spirit pour out upon us. And we'll see uh, a continuation of Joel chapter two, right? right? We'll see the dreams and the visions poured out on all people. So yeah, I just am echoing in a, my preacher style <laughs> to you that <laughs> I, believe, I believe that our best days are ahead. That seems like a great spot to end right there. Uh, it's, been, it's been really good to catch up with you and talk and... Uh, kind of see see what's going on and see where you're at and uh so i really really appreciate it and uh, i'm sure that sure that others will find this uh, conversation interesting and helpful nick great well thanks for having me on mike it's good to, all right we haven't talked in a long time i'm glad we were able to catch up today yeah yeah great awesome so i will uh i will stop the recording here and uh i'll edit stuff and we'll be we'll be good to go